This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of September 27th. It is the third week of the new season, and we are still with Matamodio as our champion. And sort of a spoiler, not really a spoiler, he, he's going to make it through the whole week. I, I'm really enjoying his run. Oh, me too. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel tiring in the way that some other long runs have felt tiring. Yeah, agreed. So on uh, Monday, September 27th, we have the contestants Angelica Wilcox, an AV service support team lead from Kansas City, Kansas, Justin Stanley, a data scientist from Vancouver, Washington, and Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose 28-day cash winnings total $1,004,001. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, So You Just Bowled a Strike, Musical Instruments, Movie Taglines, They're Sort of a Big Deal, Suffragette, and city in quotation marks. Each response is a city with city in its name. Uh And if they had listened to your deep dive, they would have gotten the $1,000 clue in the city category. Soon after the discovery of the Comstock load 15 miles to the northeast, its economy grew rapidly. That is Carson City. Matt tried Virginia City. That was not correct. And then nobody else went for it. Which isn't a bad, like, Virginia City is a good guess. That that was the silver boom. Um, mm, yeah. Um, in, in Nevada, he had the right state. So I enjoyed the musical instrument category, although I felt that they were, I don't know, I felt they were a bit easy, but it is a Jeopardy category. Except, I, I don't know, I guess more people know... Moog. I was surprised that this wasn't the $1,000 clue. The $800 clue was an engineer named Robert Moog developed this instrument in the 1960s. And that's the synthesizer. Bob Moog and Herb Deutsch. Herb Deutsch was a professor of music and Bob Moog was an engineer. And they developed Hmm. the synthesizer together. And without the synthesizer, we would not have music as we know it today. Yes. Very important invention. Yeah, definitely. If you are somebody who is learning things by listening, but might need to identify that word when it's written, Moog is spelled with two O's. Yes, M-O-O-G. M-O-O-G. Yes. Yep. I have definitely looked at it and pronounced it Moog. Moog. Uh, Moog and yeah. Kyle's corrected me. Yeah, that's, um. that's fair. It is. Yeah, Bob Moog. Uh, you can find Moog Synthesizer still. It's a brand name. You can find them on Amazon. You can look it up mm-hmm. right now. Daily Double number one is in the movie taglines category. It's at uh, the $400 level, pick number 21. Uh, Justin finds it. He's at 1400 Matt is at 7000 Angelica is at negative 600 And he wagers all 1400 He gets the clue 1985. Quote, he's the only kid ever to get in trouble before he was born. And he gets it correct with what is Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Apparently that is the first movie I saw in theaters. Is it? Yes. I was too young to remember. No. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Matt is at 7,000, Justin is at 3,200, and Angelica is at a flat zero. And the double Jeopardy categories are African American writing, 
talk about that weather. Electoral College Collage. It's a celebration. S-A-I-L. Uh, daytime TV and a nine-letter noun with N in quotation marks. Mm. It was an interesting triple stumper at the $2,000 level in that noun category. They showed a picture. Seen here is the current version of the new castle that gives this Swiss city its name. Matt rang in and said, what's up, Neufchatel? And then Angelica rang in and also said Neufchatel, but gave it a little more oomph, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, but uh, it's just Neufchatel. There's no Neufchatel. F. Neufchatel it, with an F. Is a type is of a cheese. cheese. It's similar yes. to cream cheese, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. It, it's what you get when they are out of cream cheese and you still want something on your bagel. Is it? I don't know. Yeah, I have no you got idea. People putting Neufchatel on bagels over there. What are they doing? <laughs> my, um, all my knowledge of it is it's in the same kind of packaging and it's right next to cream cheese on the shelf. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, sometimes uh-huh. we have Neufchatel instead of cream cheese, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, no, it is a it's a French kind of spreadable, mild cheese. It's, it's like a cream cheese. Yeah. Um. So I. I, yeah, I, uh, I I thought it was kind of delightful. <laughs> so Daily Double was the very first pick of the round, uh, which means that Angelica, who who had zero at that point, was the one to uncover it. With Matt and Justin, of course, still at seven thousand and thirty two hundred respectively, and she wagered two thousand uh, maximum wager in Double Jeopardy. It's in the Electoral College Collage category at the $1,600 level. She got the clue. Electors who don't vote for their state's pick are called this-less. In 2020, the Supreme Court said states may remove them. Uh, and she correctly responded, what is faithless? Although I guess maybe faith is the correct response. Yeah, but faith- I, I mean... This-less. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but, but faithless is fine. It's fine. You can, right. you it's, know. It's normal to be allowed to include the part in the That they've already the given. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice to see her get on the board. I think she'd dropped down and then made it back up to zero in the Jeopardy round, but that, that helps her out a bit. Yeah. A triple stumper in the African-American writing category at the $800 level. Mm-hmm. The clue is singing and swinging and getting merry like Christmas is the title of her third autobiography. And that's uh, Maya Angelou, which nobody, nobody went for. And yeah, I thought that, I thought that was interesting. Maybe it was just a, a thing they missed in their studies. Like Maya Angelou has like five or six or seven autobiographies. Like her, her full autobiography is a, is, is like a, a multi volume mm-hmm. like set, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like seven. Seven seven autobiographies. I had them all memorized once. It's impressive. Yeah, it was for the tournament. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this might come up. So I, I sort of wonder whether like they had memorized the title of just the first and most famous one, I know why the caged bird sings. And then mm-hmm. when they saw those titles, thought, Oh well that looks like Maya Angelou, but you know, but I don't, but I don't know those yeah. titles. Yeah. Um, I listened to I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings a little, uh, almost a year ago, maybe, um, mm-hmm. on audiobook 
uh, read by Maya Angelou, which was a nice listening experience, although she reads very deliberately. And I have to put it on one and a half speed. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> my, my brain wanders. <laughs> sure. Uh, she's, she's a very deliberate paced reader and uh some, sometimes i have i have to <laughs> i have to speed up my deliberately paced readers mm-hmm. but yeah she's hearing her read her own words was marvelous i bet daily double number three is in the celebration category also at the 1600 dollars level uh matt finds it pick number 13 he's up to 15,400. justin is at 3200 and angelica is still at zero and uh he wagers 5,000. He gets the clue. In 1944, Margaret Truman broke a bottle against the hull of this battleship during its christening. And he gets it correct with what is the Missouri, which I I did not get there at all until after he said Missouri. And I was like, ah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Matt is... uh, in a lock position with 28,000. Justin's at 7,600. Angelica is at 2,800. And they have the final Jeopardy category, Rock Legends. And the clue, a new studio album in 2020 gave him a top five album in six consecutive decades. His first in 1975. Decades start in the year that ends with zero. I'm going to just start that fight again, just right now. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Um, Cool, Emily. Cool. So, uh, Angelica guessed, who is Dylan? That's not a bad guess. No. Um, Yeah. Uh, She's wagered 27.87, so that drops her to just $13. Uh, Justin tried, who is Bowie? Not Not a terrible guess, although I guess... I don't, died, how, right? yeah, I don't know how. Yeah, I don't know how David it would Bowie have to would. Be, it would have to be posthumous. Yeah. So that's not correct. He he's wagered seventeen oh one and drops to fifty eight ninety nine. Matt got it correct with who is Springsteen? Bruce Springsteen is the correct response. Um, Born to Run was the nineteen seventy five album, and Matt's wagered five thousand. That brings him up to thirty three thousand and gives him his twenty ninth win. Which brings us to Tuesday. When we have the contestants Lori Waters, a retired teacher from New Braunfels, Texas, Stu Selenick, a TV writer from Los Angeles, Los Angeles, California, and Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose 29 day cash winnings are now $1,037,001. And we have the Jeopardy round category Entertainment and the NMAAHC which is the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture. That's a lot to say. Signs and Symbols, Books for Kids, Missing Poisons Unit, Put It in the Province, and Going Green, Mm -hmm. with green in quotation marks. Hey, good on Matt for um, knowing the author of Jumanji and the Polar Express. I feel like that's, yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a, accomplished and celebrated is he the author as well as the illustrator i think he is um, i think he is but i just i don't see his name as much in trivia things Um, no uh yeah van alsberg i think it's chris van alsberg yeah chris van alsberg matt knew that one so good for him they got all of the canadian provinces correct oh to make make alex proud proud, i think yeah he always had a little bit of disappointment in his voice when you miss canada questions (laughs) Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, Daily Double number one is in the signs and symbols category at the $800 level. It's the 12th pick and Matt finds it. Uh, he has 5,200 at this point. Stu has a thousand. Um, Lori is at zero at this point. He makes it a true Daily Double and his clue is this musical symbol indicates the name and pitch of notes on that staff. And he takes a minute to think about it, but he gets it correct. That is clef. Um, I got a little bit too, I was trying to figure out which clef they were trying to indicate. And I, he came up with clef before I realized that they could just be asking for clef rather than, you know, treble clef, alto clef, tenor clef, bass clef. Is there another one besides those? There are lots of clefs. There are lots of um, clefs. Okay. So yeah, tenor clef is one, alto clef, soprano clef, mm-hmm. sopranino clef. Oh. Bass clef, baritone clef. Uh, it's oh, really yeah, there's just, a lot. Yeah, it it um it more depends on what letter name it tells you. So, treble clef and anything that uses that same symbol is a G clef because it designates where G is on the staff. Mm. Bass clef is an F clef. The alto and tenor clef those are C clefs. Mm-hmm. And really, anywhere you put it, you can give it a different name. Yeah, oh, I'm scrolling through all the all the clefs now. Yes, lots. Of, there are lots of different clefs. From there are history. so many. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Matt's at 14,000, Stu's at 2,400, Lori's at 2,200, and we have the double Jeopardy categories from Grey's Anatomy, vocabulary, middle name, please, historic speeches, life and work in ancient Rome, and and in a supporting role. Oh man, if any, the $800 level of and in a supporting role referenced the 2019 film Parasite. Which, if anyone hasn't seen that, oh man, it's 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 great. It's jarring, but it's great. I have not seen it. Oh, you should see it. I would like to. Yeah. Eventually. It does not contain parasites. <laughs> yeah, I I have gathered that much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but my husband does not pay as much attention to kind of entertainment news, and he he knew that it one uh, best picture and that that was really noteworthy. And so he figured, you know what I suggested that, that he should watch it, but he did not know what to expect. And he was expecting some kind of, you know, horror thing with, you know, creepy crawlies. Nice. Um, it, it's not that. It is not that. That is, that's true. It was just a very pretty clean game. Not a whole lot of misses. Yeah. And, you know, Matt just took control pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And kept control. Yep. Uh, so Daily Double number two is in the Grey's Anatomy category. It is at the $1,200 level. Pick number 10. Matt finds it. He's already up to 24800 Stu is at 4000 and Lori's at 600 And he wagers 6000 Gets the clue. It is the main trunk of a series of ve- vessels which convey the oxygenated blood to the tissues of the body. And he gets it correct with what's aorta. Mm-hmm. And the third and final daily double comes back to back with the second, which is Jim always on. fun. I love that. It's at the $800 level of historic speeches. Um, and uh, everybody else's score is the same, except that Matt is now at 30800 and he wagers 10,000. 
And uh, his clue is, my friends, I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States began the first of these talks in 1933. And he knew that one. That's uh, Fireside Chat. FDR's mm-hmm. Fireside Chats. Mm-hmm. I feel like Fireside Chat has come up recently before. I think it has. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Matt is in a lock position at 48,400. Stu is at 12,000, which is a good score. Stu had a, had a, had 12,000 Coriat. That's a good score. Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot of people win with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, Lori is at 3,800. And, uh, they get the Final Jeopardy category continents. And the clue, it's the only continent with its mainland lying in all four hemispheres as defined by the equator and the prime meridian. Not surprisingly, in my opinion, everyone got it. Mm-hmm. Lori put what is Africa, which is correct, and she wagered $37.99. Stu also got it correct with what is Africa and wagered 4000 not risking his second place. And Matt got it correct with what is Africa and wagered 22 so he ended with a score of seventy thousand four hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. I thought that was an absurdly easy yeah jeopardy. Like, agreed. You don't need to know much geography to get that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. I think that sometimes people think of Africa as being like further east than but, it is. I don't know. I, I have encountered people being surprised that time zones in Africa match up with time zones in Europe. Um, <laughs> right? I, I don't know. I cannot, I, can't, I can't explain it. I can just report it. Sure. <laughs> that I guess, surprises yeah. people sometimes for some reason. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that brings us to Wednesday, September 29. Uh, we have the contestants Adriana Granados, a student advisor from Fontana, California. Daniel Pecoraro, a nonprofit manager and tour guide from Brooklyn, New York, and Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose 30-day cash winnings total $1,107,401. And we have the Jeopardy round categories. I can name that number one 80s hit as recited by Johnny Gilbert. (laughs) Those are fun. Uh, Yeah, they were fun. The non-coastal U.S., webcams, three-letter verbs, monkey, and business. I thought mostly they chose relatively easy ones for those 80s hits, and mostly we were just enjoying the novelty of hearing Johnny Gilbert recite the 80s lyrics. If he was there, like in in the booth thing, he probably did it live, I assume, right? Rather than like pre-recording and having them play the recording. Depending on on the schedule that they're keeping with Mayim Bialik, if it's like the schedule we had, um, Johnny would not have been in there in the booth for that. Oh, yeah, that's true. And Although like I, she did wave to him at the end, but I guess they could edit that in. But yeah, I, I mean, who knows? I don't mm-hmm. know. I know that with COVID for a while, he was doing his recordings remotely. Huh. Um, yeah. But I don't know if that's still the case. They did definitely cut to him, like, on set right. uh, to thank him at the end of the category. But what if, I don't know, what yeah. if that was a bit of a bit of Hollywood magic? Ooh. As yeah. in, like, just recorded when no one else was around. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who knows? But it was yeah. a great category. It was a lot of yeah. fun. Felt like we had a lot of Colorado 
some a couple of Colorado things in in this in this game yeah. at least. Yeah. Yeah. If you do come visit, we can go to the Mint. Mm. We could also go to a game at Coors Field. Coors Field is a very nice ballpark. Hmm. Good to know. Very much enjoy Coors Field. Yeah. Uh, not a lot of quality baseball being played there, but <laughs> it's a it's a beautiful park. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo- I love my Rockies. Yeah. But man, they're not good. <laughs> anyway, Daily Double number one is in the non-coastal U.S. category. Uh, it is at the $600 level. It's pick number eight, and Matt finds it. He's up to 3800 at this point. Daniel is at 1200 and Adriana is at zero. And he wagers all 3800 He gets the clue. Oh, for an ocean breeze. In August 2020, the average high in this southwestern capital city was 111 degrees Fahrenheit. Which I guess is, I'm glad that they specified Fahrenheit, because if it were Celsius, that had just been, that had been terrible. Uh, he gets it correct with what is Phoenix. I believe I've mentioned on the podcast, I was born in Phoenix. And mm. it's always too hot there. It's never not too hot there. And people in Arizona say, yeah, but it's a dry heat, but it's still too hot. <laughs> like, sure, it's dry. Like, it's, I'm not, I, I might be like, there might be one more degree of miserable that I could be. And that would be, you know, like Houston hot and humid, but it's still really <laughs> hot. Anyway, that's Phoenix. Yeah. At the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Matt is up to 12,400. Daniel is at 5,000 and Adriana is at 600. So she picks first from the categories C. It starts with CL. Uh, CL in quotation marks. In the TV kitchen, European history, I nominate you for a Nobel Prize. Southern literature and city words. Each response Mm -hmm. is a U.S. city with more than 100,000 people. Including another Colorado city of note. (laughs) Of of, of note, sure. Yeah. (laughs) Because I live there. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, the $1,600 level, a luminous event in the upper atmosphere. Uh, Daniel got that one. Um, that's Aurora. Yes. Daniel had a great game. Yeah, he did. He really did. Little little trivia about Aurora, Colorado. It is the second most populous city in the United States that begins and ends with the letter A. Atlanta is number one, and Aurora, hmm. Colorado is number two. Good to know. So yeah, all right. So so we think they pronounce Václav Havel the way I do, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, for better or for worse, which I I think is correct. I've looked it up, and also Clafouti, we think, or or you know something like that. I'm I'm actually still not sure I'm pr- pronouncing that French entirely correctly. But I would argue you can never know if you're pronouncing French correctly. Yeah. Because um, none of the letters make sense. not supposed to be pronounced Clefoutis. Like um, that one thing on uh, <laughs> in the Jeopardy contestants group? Yes. <laughs> or whatever? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I saw that. That was funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the CL category, uh, at the $1,200 level, they had a picture, um, and it said, Bunratty Castle, the most complete one in Ireland, is one of the many attractions of this county. Uh, Matt got that one. It's County Clare. Um, I think he was mostly trying to figure out an Irish county that starts with CL. Um, mm-hmm. But I knew that one because that is where my uh, my Irish ancestors lived. And so I made in sure Bunratty to Castle? like... In, no, in, in County Clare. <laughs> and so I made sure to go to County Clare when, when I had a chance to go to Ireland and kind of see the 
the you know sort of the notable sites of that area. So um, nice. Yeah, so I've been to that castle, and um, I have a little a little ceramic sculpture of it uh, as a Christmas ornament for my Christmas tree. Nice. That's really um, cool. Yeah. Getting Christmas ornaments from cool places you go, I highly recommend it because then you take them out and put them away or, you know, like seasonal mm-hmm. ornaments, seasonal decor, right? Sure, like something like, yeah. something where there's like a scheduled time where you take it out because then you get to like be reminded of all of your fun memories in like rather than like, you know, I feel like things that things that are constantly out, I sort of start to ignore them. But right. taking taking also, all my souvenirs out once a year and then putting them away is fun. Yeah. For me, it's also just a nice feeling to put away tchotchkes after. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. <laughs> cool little uh, trivia nod in the Nobel Prize category at $1,600 level. It might ring a bell that 33 people nominated this mm. Russian for the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1901. He won in 1904. Um, that's Ivan Pavlov, and trivia people know that that's a term for, I guess, classically conditioned responses to trivia in like questions. I don't know, yes. like <laughs> things we automatically respond with. Yep. Uh, so that was that was fun to see. Yeah, that was uh, that was great. I uh, I ended up having to try to explain trademarks, um, and I hope the trademark is the correct phrase um, to my to my eight year old because of the in the TV kitchen clue at the $1,200 level. Um, because of Pillsbury, this competition show from across the pond has a slightly different title for US viewing. I said, what is the Great British Baking Show or the Great British Bake Off? And mm-hmm. uh, Matt Matt rang in and said, "What is Great Brit- what's Great British Bake Off? Which, if I understand correctly, Pillsbury has, I think, trademarked Bake Off, like the term Bake Off for like their baking competition. Hmm. Um, yeah. Which is why it is called the great British, great baking, British baking show, show in the U S it just doesn't have the same ring as bake off. You know, it doesn't, uh. it took an embarrassing amount of time before I realized that the word great in great British bake off was in reference to, Great Britain was moder- mo- modifying British if it modifies anything. <laughs> and, no, and I think it's describing the Bake Off. I think you're wrong. It's a great Bake Off. Yeah, I think it is a great Bake Off. I would describe it as great. I mean, it's accurate, but it's not very British. I don't know. You're still like... not convincing me. I, uh, I think I think it's going for Bake Off. Yeah. I think it's I think it's modifying the Bake Off. Right. It's it is two adjectives describing the noun. Great and mm-hmm. British describing the noun bake off. We'll diagram the sentence. <laughs> it's not a sentence. <laughs> yeah. Daily Double number two is in the Southern literature category. It's the fourth pick at the $1,600 level. And Matt finds it. Uh, he's at 15200 to Daniel's 5000 and Adriana's 2200 He wagers 6000 and gets the clue. Set in rural Georgia, this novel, told in the form of letters, won the 1983 Pulitzer Prize for fiction. And he says, what's color purple? <laughs> um, that is, you don't have to include the the. Uh, it's fine. <laughs> that is entirely acceptable and points to the correct novel, which is the color purple. Mm-hmm. Um the one above it also won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. 
uh, Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. Hmm. Um, yeah. I think I, I've said this a couple times, but like Colson Whitehead won two Pulitzer Prizes for fiction I, recently. And like, that's, that's a name to know for trivia purposes. Yeah. Daily Double number three is in the Nobel Prize category at the $1,200 level. Pick number 12, and Matt finds it as well. He is at 26400 Daniel's at 8600 and Adriana's at 2200 Uh Matt wagers 5000 Gets the clue. In 1962, JFK nominated this first lady from an earlier administration for the Nobel Peace Prize. And Matt says, what's Roosevelt? Uh, and is prompted for more information, and he provides Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you do you do need to specify there since there is a another First Lady Roosevelt. Yeah, that's right. I was trying to. Rem- what is the other First Lady Roosevelt's first name? I can't remember anymore. Edith. Edith. At the end of the double jeopardy round, Matt is at forty two thousand six hundred. Uh, that's a lock position. Daniel's at. 15,000. That's just his raw Coriat. He did not get a chance to wager. That's um, so good. <laughs> it's so good. That's up there with like Emily Brown scores. Come on, Kyle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, no. My, I guess my Coriat was was around there. I can't actually remember exactly what it was now. I guess I'm... I'm, I'm pretty sure it was about... I'm, it was like 15,000. Yeah. I think you're right. Um, yeah, I wasn't being glib. I wasn't trying to like put you down. Know. Let's let's see. You know, you're 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 you're. Uh, wait, what was? Oh, fifteen thousand eight hundred. Okay, I just yeah. looked at my own Coriat. Yeah. All right. Well, nice job, Daniel. Your Coriat was almost as high as mine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, think, I will. We will say. Well, I don't know. Up against. An, Absolute, like, I mean, against Matt Amodio. Yeah, who, like, against, against, yeah, right? uh, an absolute, absolute legend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and Adriana's at 1800. And obviously, it's very bright and probably was struggling with the buzzer. And ugh, oh, yeah, tough, of course. It's a t- I mean, any time during the run of an absolute legend is a tough time to get the call uh, and have to have to go up there and <laughs> not even be able to get in very much. Anyway, the final Jeopardy category is mythology. And the clue is the Hippocrene spring sacred to the muses was so named because this offspring of Medusa brought it into being. I learned this from Kyle. Oh, yeah. I talked about <laughs> this in the Greek mythology. Deep yes, you did. Uh, so Adriana did not come up with anything. Uh, she has what is blank. Uh, she's wagered 800. That drops her to 1000. Daniel has what is a centaur? That is not correct. He's wagered ninety six twenty two. That brings him down to fifty three seventy eight. I wonder what ninety six twenty two means to him. Yeah, surely know. something. Yeah. And Matt has it correct, probably because he listened to Kyle's deep dive. I can only assume. Absolutely. Um, yep. He knows it is Pegasus. There is just one Pegasus. Mm-hmm. Who uh, sprang from the blood of Medusa. Yep, because um, of course it did. Yes. Uh, Matt has wagered 8,000. That brings him up to 50,600 and gives him his 31st win. Yes, it does. Uh, he actually, they, they released a little chat from after the show. He actually talked about how he did know this. Uh, he did like a project in elementary school that was like all about 
Pegasus or all about Medusa or something like that. Ah, so there we go. He talked about that particular thing. I liked my story better. I mean, it, it's more believable, but mm. I mean, I guess I'll take his word for it. Yeah. So that brings us to Thursday, uh, where we have the contestants Andrew Fox, a museum web and interactive developer from Novato, California. Abigail Noy, a screen printer from New York, New York, and Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose 31-day cash winnings total $1,158,001. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, Chapter and Verse, Homophones, That Animal Had a Name, Getting Sport E, with the in quotation marks, Ladies and Gentlemen, and The Weekend. (laughs) Which... I love that they took a Twitter meme and made it a Jeopardy category. Wait, I, I don't I don't know this meme. Hold on. Oh, oh. On a, the episode of Saturday Night Live that Daniel Craig hosted, like, mm-hmm. many years ago, the musical guest was The Weeknd, and he introduced it in a very just, like, not, like, nonchalant, but, but almost apathetic way. It was just like, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, The Weeknd. And there's a Twitter account that every Friday evening posts that gif. (laughs) Introducing the weekend. (laughs) I'm going to have to watch the clip again. (laughs) It's very good. Anyway. um, Okay. All right. That's great. So, uh, yeah, that's that's the, the, the joke there. Okay. Love it. That... The weekend category asked us to uh, name for which NFL team Trevor Lawrence, the former quarterback of the Clemson Tigers, plays. Um, oh, the, he played for the Clemson. Jackson. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's that's the Jacksonville Jaguars. I think I think more people would have gotten it if they'd asked about Blake Bortles. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, indeed. I can I can name two quarterbacks of the Jacksonville Jaguars, and I'm not sure I can name two quarterbacks of any other football team. Sure. Um, okay, four hundred dollar level of that animal had a name. Okay, so the clue is Hotfoot Teddy, a cub that survived a fire, was renamed this for a character who promoted fire safety and became his living symbol. Uh, Matt rang in and said, what's Smokey the Bear? There is controversy around this because if you go, if you ask the Forest Service, and my dad worked for the Forest Service for like 20 years, if you ask the U.S. Forest Service for whom Smokey is the mascot, his name is Smokey Bear. However, there is uh, apparently literature of some kind, whether promotional, whether sanctioned by the Forest Service or not, from the history of this storied uh, animal person thing. Mascot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That refers to him as Smokey the Bear. And so either one is trivia acceptable. As much as I want to get pedantic about it, there's no the. It is acceptable in trivia circles as either Smokey Bear or Smokey the Bear. So there we go. Yeah. I don't think I want to get too deep into it on the on the podcast, but a couple clues down. Uh, Dr. Penny Patterson taught Coco the gorilla this method of communication. Matt got that one. It's sign language. If you want to go down a little bit of a slightly distressing internet rabbit hole, you can Google like Coco gorilla problematic. Yeah. Um, 
And, uh, oof. Yeah, I seem to recall some inklings of not great things from Coco. Yeah. Yes. And and her, her person seems to have had some Influence poor, poor boundaries at best. Uh, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. At the $800 level of chapter and verse, chapter and verse, incidentally, are alternated between clues about novels based on their like their chapter ti- like titles of you know kind of chapters and then verse was poetry but at the $800 level in a Tennyson poem this lady is imprisoned in a castle not far from Camelot uh, Matt tried what's Guinevere that turned into a triple stumper Maya Bialik I think pronounced it as the lady of Shallot um, it is Shallot to rhyme with Camelot you have to yeah, you have to. That the, makes the rhyme, sense. The rhyme scheme doesn't work if you pronounce it shallot, like the like the um, like thing in the onion family. Yeah, I was gonna say shallot. Mm. Yeah, mm. Mm, shallots. Yeah, they're great. Lady of shallot. Mm. Mm-hmm. Daily double number one is in the homophones category at the thousand dollar level, and Matt finds it at the eighth pick. He has twenty six hundred at this point. Andrew's at two thousand. Abigail's at zero, and Matt makes it a true daily double. And gets the clue, a sculpted decoration on a wall near the ceiling, and the act of keeping prices or wages at a fixed level. And he correctly responds, what's freeze? Uh, F-R-I-E-Z-E or F-R-E-E-Z-E. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Matt's at 10,200. Abigail's at 2,200. Andrew's at 3,000. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, old school selfies, ST for a start, ST in quotation marks, Jack, historic structures, from book to retitled film, and the geography. Why does it have a the? Uh, because each of the something? clues had some had the as part of the the name oh, of the geographic feature. The Alps, the Riviera, the Riviera, the Levant, the, Levant. the, st- the Sud. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I didn't realize that the Golden Compass has a different title in the UK. Yeah, I didn't either. I that's like yeah. why? I, w- I wonder I have why. No idea. Apparently, the UK title is Northern Lights. Strange to me. I, yeah, I, I can't. I imagine there's a reason. Who knows? Yeah. Um, if anyone watched the uh, HBO Max Golden Compass series recently there was an actor who i thought i recognized as being in both the hbo max golden compass and chronicles of narnia Mm. yep oh yeah okay so uh lord asriel uh is played by james mcavoy who also who also plays mr tumnus which it's kind of funny because the Philip Pullman books are like, in some ways, like an like an atheist or like religion skeptical response to like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and the kind of religiously infused fantasy. Right. Um, yeah. All right. That's not that interesting, though. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but. <laughs> Daily Double number two is in the geography category at the $1,600 level. Matt locates this one at pick number five. He's at 13,000. 
Abigail's at 5,800 and Andrew's at 3,000 and he wagers 7,000. He gets the clue. The Sud is an almost impenetrable papyrus swamp from which this river emerges. And he gets it correct with what's the Nile? Mm-hmm. Which I thought was a little, I don't know. Like, I name did, a I, major ridge, river in Egypt. Right, name a river with papyrus, for right? 1600, yeah, papyrus. Yeah, it that's, doesn't actually say Egypt. Right, but that's, um, that was that was the thing. I was like, I didn't know this fact, but I very would have very confidently guessed the Nile. And yep. that seemed, yeah, seemed a bit mm-hmm. gettable for that level. Agreed. Uh, Daily Double number three is in the old school selfies category, which um, is about like self-portraits. I feel like old school selfies is kind of a tongue in cheek (laughs) way of referring to self-portraits because um, people speak about the modern selfie with scorn and derision. um, But portraying yourself has been a thing for a long time. Very long time. Yes. The millennials did not invent it. Anyway, this one's at the $800 level. It's the 20th pick. And Matt finds this one as well. Uh, He has 30,400 at this point to Abigail's 5,800 and Andrew's 9,000. And he wagers 3,000 and gets the clue. After returning to Paris in the 1890s, he took a selfie in his Polynesian themed studio. And Matt gets that one correct. It is Paul Gauguin. Mm-hmm. Anything with Polynesia or Tahiti or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's going to be yeah, Gauguin. it's going to be Gauguin. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, Matt is in another lock position at 39,400. Abigail is at 7,000. Andrew is at 9,000. And they get the final Jeopardy category, children's literature. And the clue, a 2000 Library of Congress exhibit called This 1900 Work, quote, America's Greatest and Best Loved Homegrown Fairy Tale. Abigail wrote, what is Shrek? Oh, yes. <laughs> I, you know, you know, it's a little early. Shrek was, Shrek was 2001, right? Um, sure. I don't know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but you know what? I, I'm on board. Yes, Shrek was 2001. I just rattled that off without looking it up. Shrek was 2001. Wow, um, real big Shrek fan here. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but uh, that was really funny. It's just, I mean, I just like that. <laughs> That's it's great. Good, 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 good. We guess. like it, uh, Abigail. Yeah, incorrect, which I, she knew it would be. It was, and she wagered 2001. Andrew got it correct with what is the Wizard of Oz. That's uh, the one. Which, yeah, and he wagered 1,000. I I was, that's the one that I thought of, but I couldn't remember if it was as early as 1900. It, 1900 seemed kind of early for me, but I, I couldn't come up with anything else. And Matt also got it correct with what is the Wizard, Wizard of Oz and a $15,000 wager. Mm-hmm. So he wins with $54,400. dollars mm-hmm. This isn't even the first time The Wizard of Oz has come up on Jeopardy this week because there was a clue about the Wiz in the like Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture category. I got there eventually, but I thought it was a it was a kind of roundabout but you know fun way to to clue that. Yeah. So on Friday, October 1st, we have the contestants Samantha Wells, a graduate student from Urbana, Illinois, Thomas Dye, a PhD student from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose 32-day cash winnings total $1,212,401. And uh, this is the the game where Matt is 
looking to exceed James Holtzauer's total number of wins. And, you know, you all know what happened. Um, Maya Bialik also noted that these are all graduate students, all three of them. I think just weird coincidence. (laughs) So we have the Jeopardy round categories. 1871, 150 years ago. Uh, That is a filthy lie. Even even (laughs) that feels bad, right? (laughs) It is 2000 forever in my brain. (laughs) Approximately 2000. That is what all the math is based on. 1990, about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. 1870, about 130 years ago. Uh, some fun in games, spin cycle, gerunds, for your reference, and waiter, there's a bug in my movie. Matt starts out in the $1,000 level in the 1871 category, and pick number one is daily double number one. So the scores are zero to zero to zero, and Matt wagers a thousand. Surprise. Yeah, really. And he gets a clue. This performance space that seats more than 5,000 was opened by Queen Victoria. And you got a look on his face that was like, like he wasn't sure. And he guessed what's Royal Albert Hall, which was correct. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would feel very confident in that answer. But yeah. uh, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? Mm-hmm. So he jumps out to an early lead mm-hmm. of exactly the dollar value of the clue. He was the only one to get any of these things. Oh, no, 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 he wasn't. Samantha got a $1,000 clue. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but Matt got Matt got that one and three of the others. There was a triple stumper and Samantha got one. The other contestants sort of followed Matt's strategy of working from the, from the bottom up for the most part. Yeah. Oh, uh, Roger's Thesaurus was a clue in one of my games as well oh for your reference at the 800 dollars level he divided the contents of his first thesaurus into six classes just as his hero linnaeus had done with animals and uh yeah Mm -hmm. that was roger Mm -hmm. i thought it was sort of funny to have the whole for your reference category but then right next to it at the 200 dollars level of jaren's julia child called the book titled joy of this a fundamental resource that's cooking samantha mm-hmm. got that one because like joy the joy of cooking is sort of like the encyclopedia of cooking you right. know it's a, like it is a very reference book yep holds up pretty well too um i have a copy i use it nothing too offensive sometimes. in there uh, <laughs> to modern um, or like to yeah <laughs> i mean nothing nothing offensive like you know like racist or sexist like like yeah um, but also it's not like you know I, I i'm sure there are dated recipes in there um i haven't sort of gone through specifically looking for them but you know a lot of it feels pretty timeless sure uh so at the end of the jeopardy round matt is up to ten thousand four hundred. without the aid of a daily double we will i will say thomas is at 2600 and samantha is at 2000 we get the double jeopardy categories cities of ireland science the bands they fronted name calling that's a big book and alliteration. We had, um, I think, a few more triple stumpers in this round than we've seen for a lot of Matt Amodio's run. Mm-hmm. And there was this, there was this funny moment most of the way through the round. So, at like at the seventeenth pick, Samantha gets the 
$2,000 level of alliteration correct by identifying the folktale where the man convinces people to um, add the actual food to the pot of this that he's making and she gets that that's stone soup so she gets she gets to call the next several clues because we we go to the sixteen hundred dollar level it's a triple stumper where they're looking for knock knee or knock need and then she gets to call the next one because it was a triple stumper uh nobody gets make merry uh she gets to call the next one we go over to the bands they fronted at the $2,000 level, where the clue is, as a teen, Ricky Martin, and like, maybe it is my micro generation, but I was like, come on, that's not a $2,000 clue. Somebody's going to get that one, but nobody did. Um, it's Menudo. And, and then Mayim calls on Samantha to call the next one. And she's like, girl, okay. <laughs> 1600 <laughs> Um uh, uh, I just, I, it, it was a whole mood. Um I I I, uh, I appreciated it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that but then uh, Matt got in on the sixteen hundred, and we kind of broke that streak of triple stumpers. Mm-hmm. Yes, with Darius Rucker mm-hmm. of Hootie yes. and the Blowfish. Mm-hmm. Daily double number two is in. That's a big book at the eight hundred dollar level. Uh, Matt finds it at the eleventh pick. Uh, he has 23,600 at this point to Thomas's 4,200 and Samantha's 2,000. He wagers 6,000. And his clue is, of man's first disobedience and the fruit is the first of this poem's more than 10,000 lines. And he gets that one correct. It's Paradise Lost. Mm-hmm. I was just talking about Paradise Lost briefly in a sermon today. Mm. Uh, because we had we were talking about the Book of Job, which mentions... A figure who, in Hebrew, you could uh, the name is is pronounced Satan, but we you know have come to pronounce it as Satan. And I was like, most of the things you know about Satan uh, come from, from Paradise Lost, <laughs> Paradise Lost, and Dante's Inferno, mm-hmm. and like all kinds, you know, medieval art, and like all kinds of things, other than what's right here in the book. Right. Um, you know, so like, let's peel that all away. <laughs> Disregard all that. The guy, like the conglomerate character based on like centuries, centuries of subsequent art and literature and religion. Like, we're not talking about him. Like, you know, treat this one like a new character. Like, let's just, let's just see, you know, kind of what the text says. So, yeah, I was like, oh, Paradise Lost. I was just talking about that. There you go. Uh, and Daily Double number three is in the name-calling category, pick number 15. It's at the $1,600 level. Matt also finds this one. Uh, he's up to 30800 to Thomas's 4200 and Samantha's 2800 And he wagers 5000 And he gets the clue, around 1860, this man blazed a trail from Kansas and established a trading post in Oklahoma Territory. And he guesses what's Riley... And I don't know who that who he is referencing. I'm sure he, I'm sure it's a, a fine guess because he probably knows more than I do, but I don't know what that is. Um, but it is Chisholm, Jesse Chisholm, for whom the Chisholm yep. Trail is named. All right. Uh, at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Matt is in a lock position with thirty five thousand four hundred to Samantha's fifty two hundred and Thomas's twenty two hundred. We have the final Jeopardy category: American history, and the clue. The April 26, 1906 edition of The Call, a newspaper in this city, reported on the heroic death of Hoseman James O'Neill. 
Thomas guesses what is Pittsburgh. That's not correct. Uh, he's wagered twenty one ninety nine. He drops down to one dollar. Uh, Samantha tries what is Boston. That's not correct either. She's wagered five hundred, which drops her to forty seven hundred. Matt has it correct. What is San Francisco? Um, as a result of the San Francisco earthquake, there was a fire that lasted four days in which James O'Neill died. Matt has wagered $20,000, bringing him up to 55400 If you're making a $20,000 Jeopardy wager from the lead, it's either been a very challenging day or a really, really good one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, he... And that he didn't even do any math because he had a lot of wiggle room to not risk his luck beyond that. Mm-hmm. He could have wagered up to 24600 or something like that. Yep. So, I mean, what's what's four thousand six hundred between friends, really? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Although that being said, if you have forty six hundred dollars that you just you just want to send my way, I'm I'm down for that. Yeah. <laughs> so he wins, and he gets to win number thirty three. Mm hmm. Knocks James Holtzauer out of the number two slot for most wins. Still got a ways to go for that dollar amount, though. Yes. Let's see. Is that is that information up here? Oh yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, he is. <laughs> he's about at about half of James Holtzauer's total regular play winnings mm-hmm. figure. But you know, he, he might do it. I don't want to jinx him. Yeah. His. I mean, it. It would take not to like continually like point to James, but it, I mean, it just takes running into an Emma for Mm -hmm. his run to end but yep i mean his consistency is just is it's just there you know yeah there i there i don't believe there is any way to predict when it will end yeah no the the jeopardy fan has um a way that they that they model and they say you know like using their computer model on average his streak goes for 47.043 games but that will update Um, after the next game and right, exactly. Every yes. time, yeah. Uh, yeah, it updates every time based on, you know, based on the statistics. Yeah, so we'll see him back on Monday. Mm-hmm. So this is the end of the week, and this is when we remind you that we have a Patreon. Uh, it is patreon.com slash potentpotables. You can go there if you want to slide us a few bucks. Um, we would really, really appreciate it. Uh, we do have a couple of new patrons uh, who we do want to acknowledge their names are austin brown and ian mcgecko is the name that i'm seeing here which if that's your actual name that's cool uh and if not that's cool too (laughs) (laughs) either way yeah either way pretty cool nice so thank you thank you very much we we really really appreciate uh all of the support that all of our patrons uh show us every month no matter how much it is, it is very much appreciated. And uh, mm-hmm. it is helping us to be able to keep do, doing the show and approaching that goal of being able to kind of turn over some of the responsibility. Because, uh, of course, like we mentioned, uh, editing and putting it all together takes takes some time, takes some takes some real time mm-hmm. to, to do it in the weekend and try to get it out as you know quickly as we can before the next week has gone too far. Um, mm-hmm. And so if we can we can make enough through your support to be able to pay a like respectful and 
appropriate amount of money to someone who can do that for us. Uh, that is our, our next goal. So we really appreciate mm-hmm. it uh, for everyone who is helping us get there. And of course, if uh, giving financially to us, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things is not that important, <laughs> uh, is, mm-hmm. is not what you're able to give. We, we still encourage you to uh, find ways to support social justice movements in our community. We point you to communityjusticeexchange.org, blacklivesmatter.com, and the uh, Stop Asian Hate GoFundMe database. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important stuff. So, um, so thank you. Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? I do. Are we talking about the Chisholm Trail? We are not talking about the Chisholm Trail. Okay. Chisholm. 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 Yeah. Uh, I think it's pronounced like Absalom. This one is probably a long shot because you just did a sports one. Are we talking about NFL infractions? Fouls. We are not. No. (laughs) Uh, In that case, are we talking about anthrax? We are not talking about anthrax. Ah, dang it. I really thought that would be up your alley. Uh, I did think about anthrax. Now, I was drawn to, uh, there were a couple of triple stumpers in the African-American writing category in the Double double Jeopardy round of Monday's game. Um, And I I had a hard time deciding which one to go Mm. with. Um, But then we we talked about Maya Angelou a little bit. So that kind of, I decided to go the other direction. Mm -hmm. Um, So at the $2,000 level of uh, African-American writing, the clue was the first African-American to win a Pulitzer Prize this Chicago poet was featured on a 2012 stamp. Uh, and the correct response there is Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, I did not remember that name until, uh, until Maya Bialik said it. Um, and I was like, she's a, she's a poet. She's important. You know, a pioneer. I don't know much about her at all. Um, so let's learn a little bit about Gwendolyn Brooks. It is a poetry deep dive. Sorry. Um, However, I am not asking a single poetry question in the quiz. Oh, so okay. I'll, I'll offer that to you Thank as like you. <laughs> uh, to, to sort of mitigate the, uh, the poetry deep dive aspect. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so Gwendolyn Brooks. Gwendolyn Elizabeth Brooks uh, was her full name. She was born on June 7th, 1917 in Topeka, Kansas. The first child of David Anderson Brooks and Keziah Wimsbrooks. Her father, uh, who was a janitor for a music company, had hoped to pursue a career as a doctor, um, but he gave up that aspiration to get married and raise a family. Uh, her mother was a school teacher, as well as a concert pianist trained in classical music. Um, and her mother had taught at the Topeka school that later became involved in the famous Brown versus Board of Education case. Mm. When Gwendolyn Brooks was six weeks old, her family relocated to Chicago. Uh, This was, you know, in the time of the Great Migration. Um, And from then on, Chicago was her home. She's very associated with Chicago, indeed, as the Jeopardy clue highlighted. She began writing at an early age, and her mother encouraged her, um, saying, you are going to be the lady Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who's a noted black poet at the time. She started her formal education at Forestville Elementary School on Chicago's South Side. Um, she later attended uh, Hyde Park High School. Um, it was a prestigious integrated high school 
um, predominantly white, however. Um, she transferred to the all-black Wendell Phillips High School um, and then finished her schooling at Englewood High School, which was integrated. She never pursued a four-year college degree um, because she said she knew she wanted to be a writer and she considered getting a four-year college degree unnecessary. She said, I am not a scholar. I'm just a writer who loves to write and will always write. Uh, she went to a two-year program at a junior college to prepare herself for a secretarial career that she would pursue um, working as a typist to support herself you know, so that she could should could uh could support herself financially while pursuing writing. Mm -hmm. During her teenage years, she began submitting poems to various publications. Um, she published her first poem, Eventide, in a children's magazine called American Childhood when she was just 13 years old. By the age of 16, she'd already written and published approximately 75 poems. At 17 years old, she started submitting her work to Lights and Shadows, the poetry column of the Chicago Defender, which was uh, an African-American newspaper. Her poems ranged in style from traditional ballads and sonnets to poems using blues rhythms and free verse. She uh, was noticed by um, significant writers who were, you know, kind of in the generation before her um, and received commendations and uh, encouragement and had correspondence with a number of them, including James Weldon Johnson, Richard Wright, and Langston Hughes. Her poetry um, and her characters were often drawn from the inner city life that, you know, that she knew well. Uh, she said, I lived in a small second floor apartment at the corner and I could look first on one side and then the other. There was my material. In 1939, she married Henry Lowington Blakely Jr., whom she met after joining Chicago's NAACP Youth Council. They would go on to have two children, uh, Henry Lowington Blakely III and Nora Brooks Blakely. By 1941, she was getting involved in poetry workshops, really refining her craft. She gained momentum in finding her voice and a deeper knowledge and mastery of the techniques of her predecessors. There was one particular workshop organized by a, a wealthy white lady uh, named Inez Cunningham Stark uh, at an institution called the Southside Community Art Center um, that was especially influential. Langston Hughes stopped by that one uh, and heard her read a poem called The Ballad of Pearl May Lee, uh, which is a, a poem. Um, it's a poem about lynching from the perspective of a woman who's you know, boyfriend or, or husband, I'm not sure if it's clear in the poem, uh, has been lynched. Hmm. In 1944, um, two of her poems were published in Poetry Magazine. Uh, in, the in the autobiographical information she provided to the magazine, she described her occupation as a housewife. Um, just a year after that, she published her first book of poetry. Uh, the title of that volume is A Street in Bronzeville, uh, published in 1945 with Harper and Brothers. After a strong show of support uh, to the publisher from author Richard Wright, who sort of advocated for her. Um, the book earned critical acclaim um, for its textured portraits of life in Bronzeville, which is like uh, her, her Chicago neighborhood. Brooks later said that it was a, a glowing review by Paul Engel in the Chicago Tribune that initiated my reputation. Engel stated that Brooks' poems 
and this is this is a little problematic from my pr- perspective, but it it, uh, it launched her career. It, it was uh, high praise at the time. Brooks's poems were no more Negro poetry than Robert Frost's work was white poetry. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, okay. I don't know. It, it, it feels a little like I don't see race, you know, or I don't see color. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not going to defend it. Um, yeah. In 1946, she received her first Guggenheim Fellowship and was included as one of the 10 Young Women of the Year in Mademoiselle Magazine. So she started kind of really racking up accolades. Her second book of poetry, Annie Allen, was published in 1949, uh, focusing on the life and experiences of a young Black girl growing into womanhood in the Bronzeville neighborhood. And the book was awarded the 1950 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, which made her the first African-American to receive a Pulitzer Prize. In 1953, she published her first and only narrative book, a novella titled Maud Martha, which is a series of 34 vignettes following the life of a Black woman named Maud Martha Brown as she moves through childhood to adulthood. Uh, In 1960, she published another poetry collection, The Bean Eaters, which contains many of her best-known poems. In 1967, uh, she attended the second Black Writers Conference at Nashville's Fisk University, um, which seems to have been a really influential moment for her. Some things I read noted that she, you know, sort of uh, connected politically more at that conference, maybe um, became more interested in teaching. Um, In 1968, she published a work called In the Mecca, half of which is a long narrative poem about people who live in the Mecca, like an apartment building, um, a huge apartment building erected on the south side of Chicago in 1891, which had long since uh, deteriorated. The second half of the book contains individual poems, among which the most noteworthy are Boy Breaking Glass and Malcolm X. In the Mecca was nominated for the National Book Award for Poetry, Also in 1968, she was appointed Poet Laureate of Illinois. Um, She would continue to hold that position from 1968 until her death in 2000. She published a couple of autobiographical prose works, um, Report from Part One, including Reminiscences, Interviews, Photographs, and Vignettes, came out in 1972. Report from Part Two was published in 1995 when she was almost 80. Sort of, sort of prescient, <laughs> uh, titling the first autobiography report from Part One. <laughs> um, uh, in 1976, uh, she was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the first African American woman uh, to receive that honor. She was also named the Poet Laureate Consultant in Poetry to the Library of Congress for the 1985 to 1986 term. Um, that's just that's the U.S. Poet Laureate. I, I saw that honor and I was like, oh, is that like the, the Library of Congress has its yeah. own Poet Laureate? Like, no, 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 no. The, the U.S. Poet Laureate is whoever the Library of Congress picks as the Poet Laureate, which sort of makes sense, right? Like, mm-hmm. I somehow had thought that like somehow like the, like the president or like the executive branch picked the Poet Laureate. I don't know who has oversight of those of Congress, right? It's right in the, it's right in the name. Come on, Emily. Um, yeah. So like somehow I had, I had in my head that like, I think because I only really see the Poet Laureate at like inaugurations and things, right. I, I think it was associated with the presidency in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but no, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the Library of Congress, which makes sense to me when I think about it. Sure. Uh, she taught starting 
earlier in her career and throughout um, throughout her life, she found a passion for it. She was invited to teach at the University of Chicago um, and went on to teach extensively around the country. She held posis- she held posts over the years um, at Northeastern Illinois University, Chicago State University, uh, Columbia College in Chicago, Elmhurst College, Columbia University, and the City College of New York. Mm. She died at her Chicago home in 2000 on December 3rd at the age of 83. And that's the life of Gwendolyn Brooks. I don't think I touched on all of her volumes, but we got we got most of the significant ones. Nice. Yeah. So I would encourage folks to you – know, her her work is really widely varied and you can see if if you kind of look at some of her some of her work over the decades you can see her kind of developing as an artist but checking out her checking out her work i i would recommend yeah uh but you'll get a chance to hear some of her work as we have our quiz so Kyle are you ready for a quiz oh yeah all right um so this is it's not a poetry quiz I am not going to ask any questions about poetry. Instead, I am going to read a selection okay. from Gwendolyn Brooks's poetry. Okay. And then I will ask a question about some other topic, some non-poetry topic inspired by a word or phrase from the poem that I just read. And actually, this will be a good chance for me to say the names of any um, any of her works that I've included here that I didn't mention by name during the deep dive. Okay. All right. This poem is Sadie and Maud from a street in Bronzeville. Maud went to college. Sadie stayed at home. Sadie scraped life with a fine tooth comb. She didn't leave a tangle in. Her comb found every strand. Sadie was one of the livingest chits in all the land. Sadie bore two babies under her maiden name. Maud and Ma and Papa nearly died of shame. When Sadie said her last so long, her girls struck out from home. Sadie had left as heritage her fine-tooth comb. Maud, who went to college, is a thin brown mouse. She is living all alone in this old house. That's Sadie and Maud from Gwendolyn Brooks's A Street in Bronzeville. So here's the question. Uh, the poem ends with the line, with the, with the phrase, this old house. This old house is also a home improvement television program that has aired on PBS since 1979. <laughs> Name either the original host who departed in 1989, becoming a spokesperson for Sears and hosting an eponymous television show, or the master carpenter who has been with the show from the beginning and still is now, who also hosted the New Yankee Workshop. Mm. Well, I know Bob Vila, mm-hmm. so I'm going to go with Bob Vila. All right. Bob Vila is correct. Uh, Norm Abrams is the other. Um, and Bob Vila actually left in a very complicated dispute about endorsements where, like, he was endorsing some kind of, like, local, like, grocery store, okay. if, I, if I've understood it correctly. But, like, somehow that was intention with, like, the Home Depot sponsorship of this old house and he like got pushed out. It's like, it, 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 it looks very exciting actually. <laughs> okay. Like more, more drama than you would expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Bob Vila is correct. Uh, so you're at 10 points. Nice. Um, yeah. Question or not really a question too. Um, this is uh, the 
second stanza from Children of the Poor, which is a series of sonnets in Annie Allen. What shall I give my children who are poor, who are adjudged the least wise of the land, who are my sweetest lepers who demand no velvet and no velvety velour, but who have begged me for a brisk contour, crying that they are quasi-contraband, because unfinished graven by a hand, less than angelic, admirable, or sure. My hand is stuffed with mode-designed device, but I lack access to my proper stone, and plenitude of plan shall not suffice, nor grief nor love shall be enough alone to ratify my little halves who bear across an autumn freezing everywhere. Brooks mentions lepers in this poem. Uh, Her language is figurative, um, but by what other name is literal leprosy known? after the Norwegian physician who identified the bacterium which causes leprosy. Oh, I've talked about this. I have used this term in a question and a quiz of my own. I think you have, yeah. When I talked about... Maybe about, like, the when I missed the Father, Father Damien one? Mm-hmm. 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 I, yeah. Oh. Oh, what is it? Oh my goodness, this is really frustrating. Uh, don't mind me just uh, pulling up some notes on something entirely <laughs> unrelated. Uh, oh. I don't think I'm going to get there. Uh, Nielsen. It's not a bad guess. Hansen. Hansen. I knew it ended in S-E-N. Yeah, yeah. Hansen's <laughs> disease. Yeah, that's okay. You're at you're at ten points. Um, yeah, I blew that Father Damien question. So, <laughs> turnabout's fair play. It's, yeah, <laughs> now now we've each blown a leprosy question. Um, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I'm just gonna go on record and say I hate leprosy. Mm-hmm. I said it. It's the worst. I yeah. said it. I'm with you. Come at me. It. There was a long time between uh, Hansen identifying the uh, leprosy-causing bacterium and any kind of effective treatment for leprosy. Like, 1940s or 1950s, I think, is when they really started to be able to do something about leprosy, mm. other than be like, oh, yes. It's- go go <laughs> over there. That's leprosy. <laughs> yeah. We know about the bacterium. <laughs> God, that um, really sucks, man. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and you can trust that it sucks, because I'm a doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh all right. So um so here's a here's our third poem. This one is it's an especially um well known uh one of Gwendolyn Brooks's poems. This is this is We Real Cool, uh inspired by seeing some some young men at a pool hall. We real cool, we left school, we lurk late, we strike straight, we sing sin, we thin gin. We jazz June, we die soon. Because the poem mentions we thin gin. For two points each, name the second through sixth best-selling gin brands in the world for 2020 by number of cases. I say the second through sixth. I was going to ask for the top five, but I'm not going to ask for the number one brand, actually, because it is enormously popular in one country and one country only, a country which drinks by far the most gin per capita of any country in the world. Uh, so the best-selling gin in the world is one that many people have not heard of. Okay. Um, the other ones 
the other ones you've heard of, two, two through six you've heard of. So for two points each, uh, the second through sixth. But if you happen to know the number one, I'll give you five bonus points. Oh, geez. Okay. I'm just going to name the gin brands that I can think of. Uh, Beef Eater. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's one of them. Yep. That's another. Bombay Sapphire. Mm-hmm. That's a third. Burnett's. No. Okay. Um, um, uh, Hendrix. Hendrix is not in those. Oh, uh, man. Yeah. Um, I th- it's, it's, I think, two below. Hmm. It would be like the, it would be like the eighth, I think. Okay. Um, yeah. So the, the ones you missed are Gordon's and Gordon. Seagram's. I was, I was going to say Seagram's and I was like, isn't Seagram seven like a whiskey? I know I've seen Seagram's gin, but is it really known for gin? Um, yeah, apparently, apparently it's the it's the it's the sixth, okay, uh, sixth best selling. Gordon's, I meant Gordon's when I said Burnett's. I am picturing a ah. Gordon's bottle. I am picturing a Gordon's bottle. That is that is also frustrating. Um, and then San Miguel is the number one really? top selling gin by a long shot. That is by like a factor of like five or six. Really? That's really Yeah, if you look at if you look at the graph which incidentally the graphs are all like paywalled, so like I was able I think to put together a pretty reliable list of the top 5, but I had to like look at a bunch of different websites to uh, sure. to not to not have to pay for like, you know, like like market data. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Uh yeah. The Philippines it drinks by far the most gin per capita of any country in the world. Wow. And, and San Miguel is their domestic gin brand. Ninety-eight um, percent of the gin they drink is <clears throat> is is domestic, and and San Miguel is you know kind of their their you know their main gin brand, and it just blows every other gin out of the water. That is that is fascinating. I never mm-hmm. would have today. Never I never would have thought that. Yeah, that's really really funny. Um. Yeah. So, listening to this podcast, I don't know if I've mentioned gin is my preferred liquor. Hmm. So now I, now I know. Yeah, I I didn't know that you were the gin was your preferred liquor. It is indeed. Hmm. Good to know. All right. So this poem is Medgar Evers, the man whose height his fear improved. He arranged to fear no further. The raw, intoxicated time was time for better birth or a final death. Old styles, old tempos, all the engagement of the day, the sedate, the regulated fray, the antique light, the moral rose, old gusts, tight whistlings from the past, the mothballs in the love at last our man forswore. Medgar Evers annoyed confetti and assorted brands of businessmen's eyes. The shows came down to maxims and surprise and palsy. Roaring no rapt arise ye to the dead, he leaned across tomorrow. People said that he was holding clean globes in his hands. Uh, that is Medgar Evers from In the Mecca. So the poem, of course, is about assassinated civil rights leader Medgar Evers, who was the NAACP field secretary for what state? This is a blind spot because I know the name and I know Absolutely nothing about Medgar Evers. Mm. Um, I I really don't know where to start with this. Um, I am going to 
say, for no real good reason, Tennessee. It's not a bad guess. It's Mississippi. Mississippi. Yeah. So he was um, he was an organizer in Mississippi um, where he was ex- assassinated in Jackson in 1963. His widow Murley would um, would much later become the first female chair of the NAACP in 1995, uh, having had a pretty notable um, civil rights leadership career of her own. All right. You are at 16 points. Here's our next poem. This is Paul Robeson. That time we all heard it cool and clear, cutting across the hot grit of the day. The major voice, the adult voice, foregoing rolling river, foregoing tearful tale of bale and barge and other symptoms of an old despond, warning in music words devout and large that we are each other's harvest. We are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. I'm, of course, kind of picking some of her some of her poems that are connected to real life figures because those are the easier ones to write quiz questions about sure. yeah paul robeson was a bass baritone singer and actor uh so the words rolling river in the poem evoke one of his most famous performances in what musical where he sang the number old man river i i hope i'm not misremembering this but i believe that's showboat that is showboat okay good. yes Yep. All right. <sighs> yeah, uh, he played the role of Joe in the London production of Showboat in 1928 at the Theatre Royal, Drury Lane. His rendition of Old Man River became the benchmark for all future performances of the song. Um, mm-hmm. And he was summoned to, uh, to Buckingham Palace for a Royal Command performance. Nice. He would later go on to get blacklisted during mccarthyism right i Um, call that too yep all right you're at 26 points we're gonna call this like we'll call it global protest history global protest history i mean i'll i'll bet 25 got to get above that 50 mark you know so here's our here is our our excerpt our poetry excerpt from The Near Johannesburg Boy, which is a poem within The Near Johannesburg Boy and other poems. Um, and this is just a little little snippet from a, from a longer poem. My way is from woe to wonder, a black boy near Johannesburg hot in the hot time. Those people do not like black among the colors. They do not like our calling our country ours. They say our country is not ours. The poem imagines the perspective of a boy who lives in South Africa under apartheid. Brooks prefaces the poem with the line, The herein boy does not live in Johannesburg. He is not allowed to live there. Perhaps he lives in this place. This place was a community famed for its 1976 uprising, the name of which is a syllabic abbreviation formed by the first two letters of three words, two cardinal directions, and the name for the segregated areas in the periphery of towns and cities where non-white people lived under the apartheid system. What is that place? That is Soweto, the Southwest Township. That's exactly correct. That is Soweto, the South Southwest Township. Gwendolyn Brooks was not willing to uh, visit, understandably, to visit South Africa <laughs> <laughs> under apartheid, but was very moved by what she heard 
and read from South Africa um, and was inspired by hearing an interview where um, or like a like a news clip where young boys asked each other, how many times have you been detained? Mm. Um, And that was kind of the inspiration for the near Johannesburg boy. And she said in an interview, and there's no punctuation at the end of that poem, because there's no punctuation in that situation as yet. She was writing in the 1980s. Mm. So with that... (laughs) uh, Real, kind of, real upper. Kind of, yep, yeah, real upper. Um, well, hey, look, you, you got 51 points. That's true. I did. Uh, I got it right. So celebrate. Mm-hmm. Yay. Thanks for thanks for uh, <laughs> making a podcast with me and tolerating my poetry deep dive. You're um, welcome. <laughs> it was and, good. It was good. I enjoyed it. Oh, good. I'm glad. And thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you have a second to tap some stars or like type a little like, I like this podcast. It's so great. You can go check our check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash potent potables uh, if that's something you're interested in. And if you have friends who watch Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. That's right. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back next week. Uh, I think we're expecting a special guest, so I'm pretty excited about that. Mm -hmm. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm